Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet. And I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From m and rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Yo, Trace. Yo, what? <laughs> Remember that time we took a trip to our brand spanking new state-of-the-art back issue laboratory? Ah, yes. Our laboratory, which absolutely 100% exists in real life. <laughs> it gave us our non-scientific scientific study on the sonics of soul music, right? Yeah. So that was where we tested folks to see if they could tell if somebody was black or not by the sound of their singing voice. Right. And I have an idea. Mm-mm. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. Did the maniacal laughing put you at ease? <laughs> no. No? You know, I hate it when you have ideas. When has this ever ended well? <laughs> I think we should do another non-scientific scientific experiment. And I think you would make the perfect subject. Can I get like a consent form where I like sign off on this actually happening <laughs> so that when it goes wrong, I can take you to TV court? Okay, I promise, I promise, I promise you'll be safe. Uh-huh. Side effects may include confusion, disassociation, dizziness, foggy memory, insomnia. Okay, well, I already have those, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Beyonce? You look like Luther Vandross. Oh, but make it fashion. But you ain't heard that from me. Fierce. Come. Can't stop. You see, when you do <laughs> clownery, the clown comes back I to bite. I no sleep because of y'all. It's Britney, bitch. Y'all not gonna get we no sleep because of me. Who said that? Welcome to Back Issue. A weekly podcast that revisits formative moments in pop culture that we still think about. This week, alternative music, but make it black. Oh man, it's so hard being black in the world today. <laughs> Nobody knows me or understands what I say. Bars. <laughs> The whole building blocks of rock and roll, they start in the black community. Who cares if it's rock or hip-hop or R&B? What difference does it make? Do you feel it? You know what I'm saying? If I can make you feel it, then I don't care what you call it. People were like, Paramore's black music, and all the black people were like, oh yeah, 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 yeah. 
Each week, we'll go back into the past and revisit unforgettable moments we all think we remember. And learn what they can teach us about where we are right now. I am TV's actor and director, Tracy Clayton. And I'm Manic Pixie, dream child, <laughs> Josh Gwynn. Yours was better than mine. <laughs> You've been brought here today to participate in a non-scientific scientific study. We have constructed a study to see if you can determine the era, the genre, and the artist of the following piece of music. Do you agree to participate? Yes, I begrudgingly agree. Let's do it. Okay. Scientist, run that back. It sounds like the um the zombie girls. Cranberries, the pomegranates. Not the pomegranates. The, the kumquats, <laughs> the kiwis. <laughs> um, I have no idea who that was, but if I had to guess, I would say a contemporary of the cranberries, at least. Okay, so what would you call that music, that genre of music? Like grunge, the kind of music that white people wearing too much flannel and ripped jeans make in their mom's garages. Am I right? What did I win? Tell me what I won. You're actually right. Ah! I knew it. But. What? So as you know, uh-huh. I love me some Mariah Carey and you Glitter, do. which I maintain is good. And she's always <laughs> been known for her power ballads and her sweet pop love songs. Mm-hmm. But did you know that in the 90s, when she was recording her certified diamond record, Daydream, which has songs like Fantasy, One Sweet Day, Always Be My Baby, mm-hmm. she worked on a secret alternative album. Just for fun. Who did? Mariah Carey. You trying to tell me that she had an alternative grungy album thing that she did. Right. So she writes about it in her memoir, which she just released called The Meaning of Mariah Carey. Mm -hmm. She talked about slipping into this grunge alter ego and playing around with the style of like punk, light, Mm. white female singers who were super popular at this time. Why? (laughs) Why did she do that? Because she said that during this era, the women that were super popular, like Alanis Morissette, Shirley Manson, Courtney Love, if you look at like their image, as opposed Mm -hmm. to Mariah Carey's image at this point, she's still married to Tommy Mottola, Mm -hmm. as we went over during the Glitter episode and what that meant. Not a lot of freedom there. Exactly. Mariah Carey will say that every move she made was calculated and manicured. Mm -hmm. And so she recorded this experimental alternative album as a way that she puts it to break free, let loose, and express her misery. She didn't feel like she was given enough autonomy to express that side of her. Wow. So she invented a whole new person, and this person wore lots of flannel. But Tracy, I too... What? ...have an alternative alter ego. Okay, so I have some questions. So, we're jumping into alternative music, right? And we're going to talk about how it connects to Blackness, because you know it does. Mm-hmm. What does alternative music even mean? You know, that's like a really good question. <laughs> Asking for a friend, because... You know, I mean, I, I clearly know what it is, but you know, my friend is shy, and she had wanted me to ask... What the fuck we talking about? (laughs) You know, I think it has a lot of definitions, depending on who you ask or when you ask them. Uh But for this episode, I talked to cultural critic and writer from The Atlantic, Hannah Georgias. My own personal, extremely reductive definition or framing has always been anything that would play on the soundtrack of the OC. Really just stuff that soundtracks like a lot of 
either teen angst or like young adult angst, oftentimes associated with white people, even though like they don't own the genre by any means. Okay, so I have this playlist, this Spotify playlist that I really, really love. Uh That playlist is called Mr. White Folk. You know what? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why, because there are also Miss White ladies on there too. Okay, okay. I don't know. Okay, so let's scroll through and see who was on this playlist and you can tell me. If it applies. Yes. Okay. 30 Seconds to Mars. Absolutely. Evanescence. Absolutely. The Killers. Of course. My boo, Miss Haley Williams. Paramore. My alabaster Nubian queen. You know what? (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I'm getting a good idea of the kind of music that we mean. Okay. But I do have a confession. Okay. So Hannah mentioned the OC, right? Mm-hmm. I have never in my black ass life seen an episode of the OC. I can't tell you what the theme song sounds like. I can't tell you who the people are. But I think I might have another reference that you might get. Okay. Because you watched Mad TV, right? Absolutely. Do you remember? I know where this is going. <laughs> yes. <laughs> pretty, pretty. Pretty white kids with problems. They're pretty and they've got problems too. <laughs> so I remember this so vividly as if it were yesterday. I loved sketch comedy TV so much, mm-hmm. including Mad TV. This sketch, Pretty White Kids with Problems, I'm sure it still holds up exactly. because it was a show that spoofed all those scripted and reality TV shows that were basically about pretty rich white kids with problems. 90210, Melrose Place. Yeah. And then they would have like these very special episodes where we're going to talk about race. Exactly. And then we're going to get back to our pretty white kids with problems. (laughs) So it feels like we have nailed down the type of music that we're talking about, right? Yep. I have an idea. Okay. Are you the nervous one now? Doesn't feel good. I am. (laughs) 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 Um, It's actually a good idea. I think you're really going to enjoy it. So it's basically a gift from me to you. You're welcome. Okay. like to really open this episode up, you know, and open this conversation up, we need to talk to somebody who was there, like not in the TRL crowd, but like performing on TRL, right? Okay. And I just, I just like everything black. You know how I am. So I thought maybe it would be great if we had somebody who experienced it as a black person, like a black music artist. Shut up. Yeah. I think we should talk to Fifi Dobson. Let's go! <laughs> yes! Doesn't it feel like Christmas? Do you know how formative Fifi Dobson was to me? Like I absolutely do, which is why she's the perfect person to talk to, right? Right. Right. But first, before you get to your gifts, I need to know a little bit more about this alter ego of yours because you try to just like slide it in there real quick like I wasn't going to have a follow-up. <laughs> um, please introduce me to this person. Is there a name? No, it didn't have a name. I learned from Beyonce that you do not give your alter ego a name. Otherwise, people are going to ask you about it until you want to kill it, like she confessed to on that one interview on Extra with AJ Calloway from 106 and Park, the only iteration of 106 and Park we recognize. Was there another one? (laughs) (laughs) Sasha Fierce is done? She's not done, is she? Sasha Fierce is done. She's over? I don't know. I killed her. She is. Really? Yeah, yeah. So, we buried the lead. Beyonce is a murderer. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I'm 
ready for that true crime series. The missing case of Sasha Fierce. Look, she was tired. <laughs> missing Sasha. She really was. And honestly, I kind of understand. I get it. I'm taking that lesson. And so, no, my alter ego doesn't have a name. Mm-hmm. It's more just like a part of me that only certain people get to know. You know what I mean? Hmm. When did you develop this alter ego? In high school, I think. I've always been a big fan of music. I remember stories being told to me in my family of like when I would go crazy at the <laughs> age of three when Whitney Houston and Mariah Carey would pop on the TV. Aww. Which I would like to point out as foreshadowing. I'm just saying. Absolutely. Same thing happens to this day. <laughs> <laughs> I am who I am. <laughs> and have always been. <laughs> and my parents have this drawer underneath a TV that is Filled to the brim with CDs, some still unopened to this day. It's beautiful. And inside of this drawer, you get a sense of who my parents are. You get traces of George Clinton and Cameo and Maze and early mm-hmm. 90s hip hop like NWA and Queen Latifah. Ah, your daddy was on NWA? Yeah, my dad loved NWA. Okay, dad. All right. <laughs> Amen. And for my mom, you see like Nancy Wilson and Sade and mm. Anita Baker, Rochelle Farrell, and anyone who would oh, man. sing during a champagne brunch. I vote that champagne brunch be an official genre of music, <laughs> if it's not already, because that is such a beautiful descriptor. I love it. <laughs> I feel like inside of that drawer was where I got a lot of history lessons. I got a mm. lot of cultural connection. Mm-hmm. Because I went to a high school where it was an all-boys Catholic school, and I was one of very, very few Black kids in my class. That sounds awful. I was a queer Black kid at mm. this really religious school where there weren't many queer people or Black people. Mm. And so I'm not going to say it was fun. <laughs> like, it wasn't <laughs> a joyride. Mm. It's taken me a really long time in order to feel secure in who I am and secure in how I feel and secure in my being. But at that time, I didn't feel like that. You know that being the only one in a room can be really isolating. I've heard. I've heard that it can be. Yeah. Right. (laughs) As a Black girl from Kentucky. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And so when I found this music, this music that was all about being alone and being misunderstood. Mm. Let's just say it came to me at the right point, at the right time. Mm -hmm. I wanted to get out of the body that I was in, out of the skin Mm. that I had, out of the bones that that made up my body. I just felt Mm. such a incongruency Mm -hmm. with how I felt and how everyone else seemed to feel. You know those moments where you can see someone experiencing something outside of yourself and you're like, that! Mm -hmm. That's how I feel. Yes. There was this song by Linkin Park called Crawling. And you can hear Chester Bennington's voice and it just feels full of anxiety and anger and he, like, wailed these emotions that I felt inside. And it mm-hmm. felt like he was holding up a mirror to me and didn't even know it. Then you have grad school me, which is, like, many years later, right? Like, jump okay. ahead to New York City. I've left Southern California. Mm-hmm. Me and my friends are gallivanting around Brooklyn with our earrings and undercuts. 
one night, some friends and I went to this bar, right? Because they were going to have an emo karaoke night. Okay. And the idea was that it was going to feel like a concert. You were going to have a live backing band. They were going to play the music and sing the backup vocals. Yes, you had background singers? Yes. While you got to sing songs by like Paramore, Dashboard Confessional, Yellow Card, Rage Against the Machine. I might go outside for something like that. This sounds amazing. There was a problem, though. There was like one little problem. What was it? It was nothing but white people in that room. I was the only black person in that room. And it Mm. took me back to how I felt in high school where the white gaze just felt so suffocating. Yeah, like you can feel it on your body. (sighs) Mm. And I just kept thinking to myself like, what am I doing here? Will these people judge me? Are all these people looking at me? Am I the one that's wrong? Yo, I wish there were more black people here. Y'all... Why does it have to be like this? Y'all have been here before. You just out trying to have a good time, sing some songs, and you got to go through all of this existential race checklist, you know? You know? That's just too much. It's a lot. And so I like sat there And I had to, like, make a decision. Like, is it worth it? The three minutes and 30 seconds that I will have of fun Mm -hmm. versus engaging with the super uncomfortable, problematic racial politics that are, like, playing out in front of me again. Mm. So you know what I did? You decided that it was, in fact, worth it. So you pulled out your thing, flipped it and reversed it, and then everybody loved it. (laughs) And it was the best time of your life. (laughs) I I pretended like I didn't even want to go up and sing in the first place. What? There were backup singers. It, was just, it felt too. It felt too heavy. It felt too, too, too loaded. Too loaded. And mm. like when you find yourselves in situations like that, you're doing this work of is the experience that I want to have worth it? Does it weigh the same as the work that I'm gonna have to do in order to have it? All this unpaid labor. Like, it's so wild how it pops up everywhere. Yeah. Ugh. But you know what, though? Mm-hmm. Uh, slight deviation. I think I would rather be a background singer than, like, the front, the foreground uh-huh. person. So if uh-huh. I was there, I'd have been like, all right, we got this. If you were there, I probably would have felt a lot more comfort. But mm. the thing about anxiety mm. is that it's really trying to protect you, right? Like, it's trying mm-hmm. to tell mm-hmm. you. I remember... When you felt unsafe in a situation like this, I remember Absolutely. what yeah, this experience this did to you. Mm-hmm. So, like, let me let you know you need mm-hmm. to get the fuck up out of here. <laughs> right, right, and exactly. I listened. Dang. It's really interesting how dynamic this conversation is, right? Because mm. when I hear other people talking about Black people listening to different types of music, it always sounds so, like, contemptuous. Mm -hmm. It's like the people that are having a conversation, they assume that these Black folks who are talking about what it was like to be into, quote-unquote, white music, Mm -hmm. it seems like a lot of people think that they're just like, oh, I'm such a special snowflake. Poor me. You know, like, I'm a fish out of water. And it's not. You know what I mean? These are things that, like, impact you and your life, especially as you're growing up and you're growing and forming the person that you're ultimately going to become. Absolutely. Because it wasn't my Black friends or my Black family that had an issue with the music that I listened to. They just, like, Mm -hmm. wanted to, like, know if it slapped. Like, is it good? (laughs) How's the baseline? It was the white people and how their expectations of Blackness 
would impact me mm-hmm. and how I'm supposed to act and how I'm supposed to perform right. and how I'm supposed to be. And I talked to Hannah about that. When we have sort of broad national conversations about Black people in alternative spaces or with like alt leanings or like these sorts of things that we talk about as being kind of separate from the broader quote unquote Black experience. I struggle with that sometimes because the sort of implication underneath that is the other Black people judged me for this and I was told that I was white and like I'm not Black enough. And like I found that the resistance that I've met and the resistance that a lot of other people I've met has been more often from white people in these spaces. Mm. There are lots of reasons that this type of music speaks to a lot of Black people, especially in moments of political strife and especially when people feel politically isolated Mm -hmm. because racism is a part of everything. Ah. And it isolates us and it gaslights us and Mm -hmm. it makes you feel like you're alone in your pain. Mm -hmm. And this is the type of music that focuses on isolation. So wouldn't it make sense that some Black people would like it? You know, the thing that racism does is it robs us of life, literally, but also of, like, individuality and interiority and of, like, raw emotion and to be seen as all these things that are fundamentally human and all of those things that are so often expressed in this music. And so when there is racism in these spaces and when it does push Black folks out, what it means is that we lose access to one way of expressing all of those things. Okay, so, like, when Tumblr was big, R.I.P. Tumblr. R.I.P. Tumblr. I found this super cut. With all these bands, from, like, Blink-182 to Yellow Card. Oh, my gosh. If that meme, I hate it here, was a genre of music, it would yeah. be this music. Perfect. Perfect. Chef's kiss. She's got dreams too big for this town. Stuck in this But if anybody, like, feels this way, it's fucking Black people. You know what I mean? Okay. If anybody wants to literally get out of here, (laughs) guess who it is? Hi, me. Me right here. The one whose rights you've stripped away. The one who can't walk into a karaoke bar without being stared at by a bunch of white people. You know, get me out. Untag me. I want out. It really makes sense when you think about it. Yeah. Especially today. And you don't have to think that hard that, like, the feelings of isolation and not fitting in... And needing to go someplace else where you're not always bombarded with, like, being rejected by your government or by your boss. Mm. Or, like, having Mm. a culture that everybody steals and then punishes you for. You know what I mean? Like, Mm. it makes sense that Black folks would latch on to those themes. And Tracy, so, like, I don't think anyone is trying to say that these bands were necessarily considering the quote-unquote Black oh, yes. experience when creating We are not this suggesting music. that at all. That is a good point. Disclaimer. <laughs> <laughs> Blink-182 was not speaking for the people. I just want to say. Okay. <laughs> but I just think that the lyrics and the feeling of urgency that fills the genre just so happens to parallel a lot of Black Americans' experiences here, ironically, right? Mm. Yeah, like, they're all singing about feeling out of place in a world that was created for and run by them. <laughs> right! <laughs> you know? And so I hear it, and I'm just like, I actually really, really get this. Like, it makes sense for me, but does it make sense for you? I mean, pretty, pretty. <laughs> pretty white kids with problems. <laughs> Even within the genre, right? 
What was the experience of the Black artists that worked within the genre? Mm. Like, you're working within the genre that talks about isolation mm-hmm. and feeling alone. So how does it feel to be in this genre with all these white people mm-hmm. alone and isolated? Right. <laughs> Even you as a Black person within the genre, which is, let's say it. Black people started it. Dot com, dot net. It's a grandchild of rock and roll, which means that Black people started that shit. Period, yes. We invented these spaces. We invented rock and roll. We invented the blues, which is another genre that also explores feelings of isolation that come with being different or destitute or poor or the effects of racism. For example, just to teach the kids a little bit. Teach the babies one time. You wouldn't have rock and roll without folks like Little Richard. Woo! <laughs> Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> According to the New York Times, combined the sacred shouts of the Black church and the profane sounds of blues to create some of the world's first rock and roll records. Mm, mm, mm. The version that we just heard. A wop, bop, a loo, bop, a wop, bam, boom. To the fruit. Oh, Rudy. <laughs> the original lyrics, he had to clean it up, right? Because it was too profane, as he was saying earlier. And the original okay. lyrics were, tutti fruity, good booty. <laughs> <laughs> Nasty. But then you flash forward to the late 60s and you have Jimi Hendrix and his guitar. Ah, uh, I love Jimi Hendrix so, you so much. You know the song All Along the Watchtower, right? Yeah, there must be some kind of way out of here. <laughs> did you know that it was a cover? So did Jimmy cover it? He did. Mm. Who did it first? Bob Dylan. Um. So Bob Dylan did it in 1967, and it sounded like this. There must be some way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. And then six months later... Hendrix did it, and it became his most popular and signature song. There must be some kind of way out of here. Say the joker to the thief. I think about all the times that white people covered our music without licensing mm, or mm, stole on, songs or pretended to invent genres. <laughs> the fact that Jimi Hendrix covered this song six months after Dylan put it out and it became what it was Mm -hmm. makes me just it's like a flex like I just feel (laughs) so good Jimmy was like oh I redid your little song here you go (laughs) (laughs) this is how it should have sounded right exactly (laughs) and it led directly to the 80s and you have folks like Fishbone which is like an all black rock band from South Central Hold on. So I know Fishbone. I Mm -hmm. assume they were from California, but South Central LA? Like Like NWA South Central. What? They came up with bands like the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Love them. And in 1991, they released this song called Sunless Mm -hmm. Saturday, which they performed on Saturday Night Live. And then they released it on MTV. And Spike Lee did their music video. The Spike Lee? The Spike Lee. Spike the Lee? Lee the Spike. The 90s was crazy. The 90s gave us a lot. There was a lot going on. You had Lenny Kravitz, which... Mm. Can we just take a moment and just 
admire Lenny Kravitz. I just... Lisa Bonet, just like write Teach me your ways. a book, Teach do me. a seminar. Just put your healing hands on my forehead and transfer it by osmosis, Lord. How'd she do it? I would pay for Jason advice. Moore. Like, I mean, I'd pay for several things, you know. Like, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we should move on. <laughs> but we had folks like Lenny Kravitz who debuted his first album in 1989. Mm-hmm. There was this review from All Music from Stephen Erlewine who said, Kravitz had yet to become a classic rock caricature, but he could still surprise on this uninformed, endearingly unwieldy first record where he split the difference between John Lennon, Curtis Mayfield, David Bowie, and Prince, sometimes exhibiting too clear of a debt to his idols. Mm, so he sounds too much like the music that his own people created. I feel like it's really interesting because when Black musicians play rock music, they often get compared to white musicians. Mm. And when white musicians go the other way, they just get called unique and soulful. Bloop. Something that we talked about in the Blue Eyed Soul episode. Mm-hmm. It's not equal. <laughs> At surprise. All. It's not equal. It's not Splenda. It's not sugar. <laughs> it's not. It's not. It's not. But all that was put aside when Lenny had his huge ass hit that was in every commercial in the 90s, which I think is an indication of how big it was. Car commercials. I can hear it. I can see it. I want to go, Lenny. Take me with you. I'm air guitaring. Y'all can't see it. It was every car commercial, every airline commercial, every vacation commercial. That's how you know that, like, you you didn't did something. And then the 90s continued to be really crazy. You had folks like Hootie and the Blowfish. Hootie! You remember what come from the world. want to be Do you know how upset I was when I found out that the band had no Hootie and no Blowfish? Yo, I don't care. The black man's name is Hootie for the rest of his life, which is disrespectful. <laughs> I realize it. But I was just like, how could his name not be Hootie? And I, I remember really being hyped because I was like, oh, okay. This man is like, yeah, I'm black right. and I play guitar and my right. whole band is white, but I still kept my black ass childhood nickname. Hootie. Hootie. Where's Hootie? Right. Another true crime podcast. Ooh. And so when you see black faces pop up in these pop punk spaces, right? It feels novel and it feels like an infiltration, but it's not. Mm. It's a reclamation. It's just us coming back home. It's us claiming what's ours. It's us walking in this house and being like, what are y'all doing in my living room? Get the fuck out. And so when I looked online as a kid at pictures of the Warp Tour, for example, mm-hmm. I didn't see any Black faces in the pop punk bands that toured around the country. Right. But then I was watching TRL once. Mm-hmm. On the countdown, uh, time to meet our next guest. Only 18 years old. She rocks, she's rolls, she's from Canada, and she's not Celine Dion. That's the good news. This is Fifi Dobson, everybody. I remember seeing her and being like, who is this? <laughs> you know when kids have their first birthday mm-hmm. and you haven't given them sugar for the first entire year of their life? And then they eat the cake and they look at you like, <laughs> you've been lying to me this whole time. 
That's how I felt when I saw Fifi Dobson. Mm. In this music that she had, you hear what was happening at the time. You hear mm-hmm. Avril Lavigne. You hear the angst and the anger that teenagers have with their parents at times. Right. But when you were watching it, you saw this fresh-faced Black girl who looked like she should have had, like, a Neutrogena skincare campaign. You know what? I was just going to say, she looks like she would have been, like, a print model or something. Yeah. What? The one that you would not figure would grab a guitar and start screaming and screeching and singing. And that's why I loved her. And it's your gift. That gift, of course, is Fifi Dobson. And we are going to talk with Fifi after the break. So come back. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. And I want to tell you about a podcast I think you're going to love. Who Weekly is a podcast about everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Does celebrity news stress you out? Are there too many people you've literally never heard of? Check out Who Weekly, a podcast hosted by Lindsay Weber and me, Bobby Finger. Each episode goes deep into the biggest Who Liberty stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we'll answer the most burning listener queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly on the Odyssey app or wherever else you get your podcasts. I'm Shimol Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. When they heard my voice, but they saw my image, they were like, okay, well, Brandy Spears. I mean, they actually used that term. What? Brandy Brandy Spears. Spears? Yeah, Brandy Spears, because she's got, like, a pop voice, but she, you know, she's black. A Brandy image. Yeah. (laughs) Right, exactly. (laughs) Wow. And I was like, well, that's kind of scary. Like, you're branding me before I even know who I am at all. Like, I was at that point 15 years old, and... I mean, who doesn't love Britney? Who doesn't love Brandy? But I mean, it was like, that's not who I am. But I couldn't really articulate that because I wasn't sure exactly who I was or what I was doing. That's Fifi Dobson. She talked with me and Josh about what it was like when she was trying to break into the industry, recording her own demo tapes via karaoke, which is the smartest idea I've ever heard in my life. The invention of this Brandy Spears person was the only way that the record industry knew how to interpret her so that they could sell her music. She sat down with us to talk to us about her experiences entering the pop punk space, the obstacles that she faced, and what she thinks about all of it today. So I feel like the question of like, how does a black girl get into like guitars and rock is lazy and kind of gauche. How do you respond to that question? Are you annoyed hearing it? Are you tired of hearing it? And like, what do you say when you're asked that question? I mean, it's, I'll just tell the truth. It's, it's, it's really, my sister used to lock me out of her bedroom and I have an older sister who's about eight years older than me. 
And when I was like mm. 12, 13, you know, she was playing Nirvana and, you know, uh, Guns N' Roses and Smashing Pumpkins. And she would never let me in her room, but Aww. I would listen to like Axl Rose holding that one last note, like, ah, for like ever. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? It's so crazy. And then, you know, it just, it struck a chord and I didn't realize it at that point because I was so young. But I also grew up with a mother that loved music from Phil Collins to, you know, the Bee Gees to Bob Marley, you know. So I was submerged in music. And I think the guitar was just, for me, an expression because it has a beauty in the instrument, but it also has an angst and a rebellious quality to it. So I think that's why I related to it so much because there was mm. so much rebellion. Was that reminiscent of the rebellion and angst in you? Oh, definitely. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I know, like, at the beginning of your career, you were signed to Jive Records, which in 2000 was the mecca of everything mm-hmm. bubblegum pop. sync, Backstreet Boys, Britney Spears. And I read that, like, when they signed you, they wanted to mold you into the more of like a traditional bubblegum pop star and that you said no and left. Can you tell me about that time? Yeah, I got signed basically on karaoke. (laughs) And yeah, making karaoke tapes at home because that's all I could do. And uh, when they found me, my karaoke songs, some of them had Britney in them and like you had Paula Mm -hmm. Abdul and Janet and all Mm -hmm. this stuff. And uh, of course, Celine Dion, fellow Canadian. Shout out to Celine. (laughs) So then... They sat me down and was like, this is what's going to happen, you know, and I was just like, I'm sorry, I got to walk away from this development deal because I I have a gut feeling that there's something missing in this music and it, it was guitar. It was mm. rock. How did you find the strength at 15 to be like, this isn't right? Yeah, and to just say no. I'm still trying to learn how to say no. Right? You're okay. 15 and you're just like, mm, nah, it's not going to work. I don't really know because I was offered money and I knew that would help my family. We have, you know, we were in a very tough situation and my mom's a single mother and I knew I could have helped us. I just knew that my career would be over before it started Mm. if I didn't follow my instinct. And I don't know how I said no. I ate the free lunch, though, first. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Got to get your reparations when and where you can. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You were just talking about, like, the tension between what people saw when they saw you and heard when they heard you. Mm. And I know that, like, a lot of Black artists who do any sort of other music other than, like, R&B, rap, and jazz have told a lot of stories about being written as R&B artists because of the color of their skin. Did you face the same sort of white anxiety around how to categorize you? And like, what did that feel like? Well, for me, my mom is white, my dad is black, and I grew up with my mother. So when I started, it was very interesting because I was judged for doing the music I was doing. And people saw color. And to me, it made no sense because Mm. I grew up in a mixed home. My dad had just come back into my life at 18. And so I was embracing all these things and I felt like I was becoming more whole than ever. Mm. And yet I was still being looked at as, why is this Black girl doing rock and roll? 
I remember doing an interview, a German interview, right before a TRL show, actually. And the guy asked me, like, how does it feel to be Black? What? Oh, that was like the whole question? <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, it was the whole question. And I'll never forget it. I just will never forget that moment of like, why is that your question? Mm-hmm. Right. Where are you going with this? And my manager got it all the time, you know, you know, you really think this Black girl's going to work doing this kind of music. And like, now there's no boundaries. Like, genre? What is genre? Was there a particular moment where you felt like, okay, I'm here. I made it. I've arrived. Uh, I felt that moment going on the Justified tour with Justin Timberlake in Europe. That was a no. that was a huge one for me because I went to every Insane concert <laughs> and I used to write in my journal when I was in high school. I was a nerd, such a nerd. I'd write his name over and over again, like one day Justin Timberlake's gonna know me. I swear, you know. And like kids in my class were like, "She crazy." Like, <laughs> yeah, right. She's gonna know Justin Timberlake. Like one day, one day, one day. So that was like one of my. I guess, manifesting goals that I had without knowing it because I didn't know how to manifest at that age. But it was something that I wanted so bad. And every time I was just show, I'm like, you're going to know me, motherfucker. Let me write that down because it clearly worked. (laughs) And and then I got on the tour and it was that very moment that we pulled into the venue and he was walking behind me to meet me into the dressing room to introduce himself. And I remember I just kept thinking, this is it. This is exactly wow. what I was looking for as a kid. And maybe like it, it didn't really turn out the way I had thought exactly when I was younger it was going to mm-hmm. turn out. Um, <laughs> but it showed me a lot and it proved to me that if I really put every piece of my heart into something that I could possibly see great results. I know that there's ups and downs to probably every step in your career. Your first album, you have to establish yourself. Your second album, you have to prove that, like, everyone wasn't wrong the first time. Then, like, they're sustaining it on the long term, which is, like, even its own set of challenges. Do you feel freer or more limited where you are now than where you were when you started your first album? Mm. I feel very free because I'm independent right now and I I haven't made a choice of who I want to sign with for this album. And that's a very powerful feeling because I'm going to deliver what I believe in. And mm. whoever wants to come on board, I'm open arms, you know, to them. But I want them to believe in it. And I want there not to be just one person in my corner in in an office, but multiple people. Mm. So I feel a freedom because I own my music. Mm. You do seem to be very, very, like, even-keeled and just, like, very, like, like you've wrapped your head around, like, how the industry is. And to even, like, be able to say no to a record executive at, like, 15. What have you learned about yourself from your experience in such a fickle industry? First of all, I've learned how tough I am. My mm. mom used to tell me, you're going to have to have real thick skin for this industry you're about to go into. And I, you really do. You really do. But also that, you know, I have a quote tattooed on my arm by June Carter. And it says, God has a plan for you. This too shall pass. Press mm. on. And I think mm. that's a big one is that when you feel like your world's crumbling and everything's falling apart, things change, seasons change. It always does. So don't give up, basically. So 
what's going on with your music now? I know that you're in Nashville, which is like, yeah. you know, like a mecca for songwriters, a mecca for country artists. Yeah. Are you dabbling in country? Is that what's happening? No. Um, <laughs> you said like how dare you no i love country music but i no man i'm doing my rock pop stuff all the way i've been working on a new album with jim johnson who is an amazing legendary producer and just finished doing a song for a movie coming out with linda perry who's also a legend uh, so, yeah i have one more question do you know that, like, everyone that I told that I was going to interview Fifi Dobson, like, went insane? Really? <laughs> My friend Sierra sent me this text, which I think sums up everyone's reaction pretty well. She said, man, I remember when I discovered her, I felt like I won the lottery and that my life would be different. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. What would you say to someone who was so impressionable and like looking and searching at that age and like now finds themselves in adulthood and kind of like in the same situations like you know you walk into these like white workspaces Uh, and it's mm -hmm. kind of like junior high all over again Uh um fuck (laughs) them I love it stand straight keep that chin up (laughs) just fuck (laughs) them I love it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah. Thank you. part of the show where we usually invoke the spirit of Tyra Banks and mm-hmm. learn something from this. But for this episode, I think we should invoke the spirit of No Doubt. Mm. And... I agree and I will allow Okay. It. What have I learned? I learned that maybe pop punk music can save my soul right now as okay. a black woman who's going through the ringer in this fucking country who is angry and doesn't always mm. have an outlet for it aside from yelling at people into the void on Twitter, which honestly doesn't help that much. <laughs> <laughs> but... If I just put on some uh, some My Chemical Romance, shout out to my booze. Yeah. And just like literally, like even if it's just screaming in my head, like it just, it scratches an itch. You know what I mean? Like it, it mm-hmm. I feel lighter afterwards. Yeah. And if there's anybody in the world right now who needs a connection to that anger, it's black people. Right. It's women. Right. It's queer people. Right. It's us. Right. Because when we keep that shit in, it turns into physical ailments. It turns into worsening mental health, it turns yeah. into depression, and it's one of the reasons why Black people are more likely to die of every illness more mm. often than other people. I didn't understand that when I was younger because I was just like, okay, how can how can this be? <laughs> right, how are right. we like most likely to die from heart disease and high cholesterol and this disease and that disease? It's because we are stressed out. Our nervous systems are taxed. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. Also, we're tired, you know? Like, carrying all this inside is just like... <sighs> So, so much. And then white people yeah. want to take rock and roll and take the blues. Like, we we need that, sir. We need that. Return it. Give it back. I'm going to take that back. I'm going to need that back. Very much in the spirit of This Is Ours, and we started it, and y'all uh-huh. um, are perpetrators. 
there's a song that I want to share with you, with myself, with the people. Okay. With, with the Lord and the angels, everybody. There's an album that my ex-husband Most Def did called Black on Both Sides. <laughs> um, he started wilding out, so we had to get divorced. You know, okay, okay, I, don't, I, I don't want to talk about that. <laughs> the album actually turned 20 years old. But he's got a song on there called Rock and Roll. And Rock and Roll basically says everything that we've been saying only in rock and roll form. Bob Dylan, Elvis, John Lennon, he's just like, that's not rock and roll. Nina Simone is rock and roll. You know what I mean? And also, he had, um, maybe he still has it, I don't know, but like his own like little alter ego band situation, like a alter rock and roll. Ego. Yes. Called Black Jack Johnson. It's so, so Wait. good. <laughs> Listen, is that not the best? So, we learned a lot today. Yeah. Earlier, you told us a story about you being younger and walking into the karaoke place with a full band and background singers and not feeling comfortable enough to get on stage and sing, right? Mm -hmm. Today, would you sing on that stage? It wouldn't be an easy thing for me to do. Mm. I'm going to say that. Like, it would still be difficult. But what I've realized and what I've understood from what we've talked about today is that it's not a problem with Black people who enter those spaces. It's a problem Ooh. with the people who maintain those spaces and make them exclusionary to mm. where Black people feel excluded and not welcome. Right, right. One thing that all of this has made me appreciate are the spaces in which Black and Brown and queer people are centered. That's more interesting to me now. I have no more interest in going to like that karaoke bar. It doesn't it doesn't matter to me as much as it did then. I love it. So I think what I would do is start my own karaoke night where we would sing like Fifi Dobson oh and Lenny Kravitz and Fishbone and Blackjack Johnson. Ah! Can we do this karaoke night somehow? Let's do it. But black people would get in free and white people would have to pay five bucks. was a production of Pineapple Street Studios. This show was created and is hosted by Tracy Clayton. And Josh Quinn. Our lead producers are Josh Quinn and Emmanuel Hapsis. Our managing producer is John Asante. Our senior editor is Leela Day. Our associate producers are Alexis Moore and Zandra Allen. Our intern is Brianna Garrett. Special thanks to Gabrielle Young. And our executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Max Linsky. This show features music by the one, the only DJ Don Will. You can follow him on all the socials at DJ Don Will. And you can follow me on the socials at Brokey McCarthy. And you can follow me at Regarding Josh. Subscribe to this podcast wherever free podcasts are sold. And follow the podcast at Back Issue Podcast on Instagram. Bing. When you tweet about it, I do hope that you'll tweet about it. Use the hashtag Back Issue Podcast on Twitter. Um, rate, subscribe, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your frenemies, tell your grandmama them. She doesn't know what a podcast <laughs> is. That's fine. <laughs> you can learn later, Grandma. Bye. Bye.